Unboxing the Canon takes a closer look at the history of Western art. We might be seduced by the pretty packaging, such as soft brush strokes, brilliant colors, grand gestures, expert carving, even traditional iconography. But what happens when we take a deeper look? When we open the packaging and see what might have been invisible, or what is a cultural blind spot? Join Professor Linda Steer and listen in for a take on art history that connects the past to the present, critiques the canon, and reveals what might not be immediately apparent in Western art and its institutions. I remember this well. It was a Tuesday evening in Paris. I'd finished my research for the day. I was doing research for my PhD on surrealism and photography and I'd gone to meet my mom at the Louvre. She was visiting for two weeks, and it was so much fun to show her everything I loved about that city. The Louvre was open in the evenings on Tuesdays, and it was much less crowded. So we went then. We'd already looked at what you'd expect to look at in the Louvre. The Greco-Roman sculptures, such as Venus de Milo, the Mona Lisa, and other Renaissance paintings, and of course, the large and magnificent history paintings. But there was one painting I really wanted to show her. It was a painting that was in many ways the opposite of Jericho's monumental, dramatic, emotionally intense raft of the Medusa that I talked about in the previous podcast. But it was on the opposite side of the very large museum, and of course, we'd lost track of time. It was getting late and closing time was approaching. So we ran. Well, sort of. We walked really, really fast. Through a maze of corridors, rooms, paintings, maybe a marble staircase or two, around a few corners, and we were there. I visited this painting many times over the years, and even now, just in imagining it, well, it is breathtaking. In this small-scale painting, it's only 24 by 21 centimeters, we look into the private world of a woman fully engaged in her work. Her eyes are lowered, focused on her hands, as she carefully holds two small spindles on her left forefinger and moves pins with her right hand. The light illuminates the side of her face, her shoulder, her forehead, and her hands. We see her perfectly parted, braided, and curled hair, the white lace on her lemon-yellow dress, the deep blue sewing cushion in front of her right elbow in the left foreground leaks red thread. The background is a nondescript pale gray wall. The space is flattened and cut off by a rug-covered table and her sewing stand. All the focus is on the figure. We, the viewers, are positioned below her, which creates a certain reverence or monumentality yet she doesn't know we are here. To me, the painting evokes peace, calmness, and concentration. It is a tiny, beautiful, and mysterious painting. This is Johannes Vermeer's The Lacemaker from 1669 or 1670. It is one of many, many Dutch genre paintings from the latter 17th century that depict women in domestic spaces. Yet it is rare. Vermeer only painted 36 paintings. At the time it was painted, it was a luxury item. 
And now it is worth, well, I don't even know what it's worth now. The last Vermeer painting that went on the auction block sold for about 40 million, I think. This one is probably worth more. In this episode, called Light and Luke's, we take a look at the connections between Dutch painting, trade, and luxury during the so-called Dutch Golden Age of painting. We will focus on post-1650 genre painting and will turn towards a new form of still-life painting called Prongstelleven at the end of the episode. So, Dutch genre painting, what is it? The word genre is a bit confusing, especially as in the last podcast, I explored the genre of history painting. But in general, genre paintings depict scenes from everyday life, as opposed to biblical or religious scenes, mythological scenes, and the historical scenes we talked about. While other cultures painted scenes from everyday life, this type of painting rose to prominence in the Netherlands in the 17th century. Why? Well, after the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, where some Christians separated from Catholicism, religious art was in decline. For the most part, Protestants did not decorate their churches, and the Netherlands was mostly Protestant. At the same time, the Dutch, who were expert shipbuilders, were establishing themselves as world-class merchants, making a lot of money in international trade. Many scholars see this period as the beginning of capitalism. By the 1650s, the Netherlands was the most prosperous place in Europe, if not the world. Prosperous, that is, by capitalist standards, which means there was a large middle class with expendable income. And there was a much smaller group of elites who became super rich, like the 1% today, who had a lot of political power and carte blanche to exploit people around the world to make money. While there are some differences, it might be helpful to think of the Dutch East and West India companies as the Amazon.com of the 17th century. Just as today, For the middle and upper classes to have their goods, the poor around the world suffered. What does this have to do with art? Expendable income. There was an explosion of painting in the 17th century. Art thrives during eras where people have expendable income. People wanted to decorate their homes with luxury items and paintings were luxury items. There were works of art for various levels of middle class incomes. Prices for paintings range from around 10 to 600 guilders. 600 guilders is roughly equivalent to what a middle-class person would earn in a year. Works that were made by highly skilled painters such as Gerrit Du, Peter de Hoek, or Vermeer fetched higher prices because they were realistic imitations of nature. Painter and writer Samuel von Hoogstraten claimed in 1678 that Quote, perfect painting is like a mirror of nature in which things that do not exist appear to exist and which deceives in an allowably diverting and praiseworthy manner, end quote. Scholar Mia Tokumitsu argues that while these high prices were partly due to skill and labor, 
for, I'm quoting here, in a commercial society, knowledge is often translated into market value, end quote. They were also valuable because they both functioned as precious commodities, that skill of deception, but also depicted precious commodities. Many of the paintings depicted luxury items. So as Tokamitsu claims, their value was nested, a luxury within a luxury. Now Tokamitsu was writing about Prongstelleven, a particular kind of still-life painting that pictured excess, but I think we can think of this when we look at genre paintings as well. When we look at Vermeer's Lace Maker, we can see that his painting technique in itself is a form of luxury. It is highly realistic. Vermeer's painting technique mimics the way we see. Some portions are clear and in focus, whereas others are out of focus. He was highly skilled at creating that mirror of nature, that acceptable deception valued by Hoogstraten and collectors at the time. But look also at the carpet that covers the table in that left foreground. It has been identified as a Dutch carpet, so it's nice and it is somewhat luxurious to cover one's table with a carpet. But other paintings by Vermeer depict interiors with much more luxurious furnishings. Let's take a look at the music lesson, another of Vermeer's interior genre paintings from around 1662 to 1665. It is owned by the Queen of England. This painting doesn't depict a music lesson. It depicts a young woman playing a harpsichord-like keyboard instrument called a virginal for a suitor. Except for her face reflected in the mirror above, we only see her back as she is engrossed in playing while the suitor stands nearby and watches. Like the lace maker, we feel as though we are voyeurs, looking onto a scene where the figures are engaged in activities and unaware of our presence. This is exacerbated by the placement of the figures against the back wall of the room and by the carefully crafted perspectival illusionism that draws us to them. The vanishing point is at the woman's elbow. There is a painting and a mirror on the back wall, leaded windows on the left, a beamed ceiling, a marble floor, a leather chair, and another musical instrument, a bass viol, on the floor between the woman and the chair. In the right foreground, we see a carpet-covered table, as in the lace maker. On it sits a silver tray and a white and silver pitcher. But let's examine this carpet. It is not a Dutch carpet, but a thick, luxuriously, prohibitively expensive Turkish import. Scholars Wayne and Wayne note that such carpets were not ordinarily found in homes. Yet imported carpets appear in many of Vermeer's paintings and in the paintings of his contemporaries as well. Take Gerard Terbork's painting Lady at Her Toilet from 1660. We see a wealthy woman in her bedroom with her servants helping her to get dressed. In front of her there is a large wooden table covered by a beautiful orange, blue, cream and black carpet. This same carpet appears in another of Trebork's paintings and has been identified as an Anatolian medallion carpet by Walter Denny. Islamic carpets reappear in Vermeer's paintings as well, 
leading scholars to speculate that the artists owned such goods or had access to them. Having access to luxury goods only increased the realism of the paintings and their value. This is also true of the dress the woman wears in Lady at Her Toilet. The skirt is made of lustrous, light-reflected gold satin, and Terborg renders it splendidly realistically. We see the details of every fold. As Wayne and Wayne write, Terborg probably owned a bolt of this expensive cloth to use in his paintings, and having access to satin and the ability to render it faithfully was expensive and labor-intensive. This is an example of nested luxury. The painting employs much skill and knowledge, took time to produce, was expensive to make because the artist had to purchase luxury items, and depicts an interior scene of high luxury with the carpet, marble fireplace, velvet curtain bed, gold frame mirror, and candlesticks. It is tempting to see these interior scenes as slices of life, but that would be false. They are highly constructed paintings that do not reflect the real living conditions of middle or even upper class people at the time. As Vermeer scholar Marjorie E. Weissman notes, the marble floors in many of these paintings did not typically exist in homes. Imported Carrera marble was much too expensive and it was also very cold. These are the floors of public buildings. It is the same with the golden light reflective chandeliers depicted in many of the interiors. These were exceptionally rare in homes, although you would see them in churches. The same goes for the carved marble fireplaces. Most homes did not have them. As Weissman also notes, most Dutch homes were terraced. That is connected to one another at the sides and only had windows at the front and back. While some of the more expensive homes had interior courtyards, which let in some light, the houses were very dark. She states that the clear, even daylight we see in these paintings, particularly in Vermeer's paintings, does not depict reality. I wonder if the light itself might be a form of luxury. Yet the desire for these realistic and imaginary scenes depicting modest women in luxurious homes was high and the art market determined what painters painted. We tend to look at a Vermeer and think of the painting as his artistic vision. But that is a modernist fantasy. In the early days of capitalism, he and his peers painted on speculation. They hoped they would find buyers for their work, and so they painted what was selling. This is also true of the Prunkstelleven, loosely translated as ostentatious or sumptuous still life painting that emerged around the mid-17th century. Artists such as Gerrit Du and Willem Kelf painted opulent still-life scenes overflowing with an excess of wealth and luxury. Often interpreted as vanitas paintings, reminders that life is fleeting and we will all die, I think we can also read these as status symbols. In a still-life by Kalf from 1662, we see a marble table partially covered with an Islamic carpet. On top, there is a silver tray, a partially peeled lemon, a Chinese porcelain dish, another fruit, apple or pomegranate, a nautilus cup, which was a cup made of a rare imported shell from the Indian Ocean, set with an elaborate gold mount, 
and here it is filled with an amber liquid, and an exquisitely cut Venetian glass container. Other paintings depict similar scenes of excess and luxury. It is important to note that these objects and even the fruits and vegetables also depict Dutch dominance in the world market. That objects from China, Persia, Venice, from all along the Silk Road could appear in one place. Yet like the genre paintings, these scenes were largely fictitious. It is as if buyers wanted to purchase images of the wealth they could only imagine. Conspicuous consumption is not new, and it is interesting that we find so much of it in a primarily Calvinist country. Paintings such as these I've talked about in this episode are often displayed as artifacts of our shared Western cultural legacy. But I wonder about that. Whose cultural legacy? My ancestors were farming in the 17th century. If they had any decoration in their homes, it might have been a print on paper. But even that is unlikely, especially as they were not living in the image-laden Dutch Republic. So what does it mean when those of us of European descent claim this as our cultural legacy, a culture from which most of us were excluded? I think it says a lot about capitalism, desire, commodity fetishism, and fantasy. But that is a topic for another day. See you next time. Unboxing the Canon is hosted and produced by Linda Steer for her course, Introduction to the History of Western Art, in the Department of Visual Arts at Brock University. Brock University is located on the traditional lands of Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples. Our sound designer and editor is Devin Dempsey, who is also reading these credits. Our logo was created by Sherry Michaels. The music for this podcast have been adapted from Night in Venice and Inspired by Kevin McLeod. Both are licensed under Creative Commons Attribution International 4.0. We are grateful to Alison Innes from the Faculty of Humanities for sharing her podcast wisdom and offering support. This podcast is funded by the Humanities Research Institute at Brock University.